0: Hi, I'm Susan, and this is Diane, and this is When Autumn Comes. Look, life sometimes just looks different than we thought it would. This is a podcast for mamas and for people who love them, whose lives were flipped upside down as a doctor looked into our eyes and explained our child's prognosis, or for the mamas who get very little sleep as they face symptoms and behaviors that just aren't typical for other children. This is a place where we can take on this journey together because we know that this can be a sad, lonely, misunderstood path. But we also know that as colder temperatures and darker days begin to appear, so do the golden leaves and beautiful sunsets of autumn. We know that life comes in seasons. We know that in our world, 24 hours can hold so much change that it feels like four seasons in one day. We are here to let you share your story, let you laugh and let you cry, Let you learn and let you grow together with other mothers when autumn comes. You guys are going to love today's guest. Carissa from Kirkland, Washington is joining us to talk about her beautiful family. In her own words, she says, I was a social worker in my past life, turned special needs mama who is home full time. Now I'm a pandemic made second grade teacher and a professional coffee and wine drinker depending on the time of day. Today, Carissa talks to us about receiving her son's diagnosis and how traumatic that first chapter was for her. We also ran out of time and we're totally going to have Carissa back because she is like the IEP expert. And that conversation will definitely have to take place on another day but she tells us a little bit about building her community when she felt lost and drowning she didn't have a community so what did she do she built her own you guys get excited carissa is one heck of a powerful mama and i cannot wait for you to meet her
1: Hey, everybody. We are here with Carissa. She's going to share her story of her beautiful family. Um, Welcome. We're so excited to talk with you. Thank you. I'm excited to be here.
0: I know Carissa through a mutual doctor contact, and she put us... um, Carissa is in Washington State. I am in Virginia. We had wine two summers ago. And I mean, it feels like it was an eternity, but it also feels like yesterday. So...
2: Maybe not even two summers ago because Benji was just
0: born. He had just gotten out of the NICU, so like a year and a half yeah. ago. Yeah. Um, I showed up to the wine barn with like my breast pump in my bag, and we had to carry the stroller up. Oh, good times. Good times. <laughs> hey, any non-COVID times are good times at this point. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I would take it in a second. <laughs> i have two breast pumps if I had to. <laughs> Strap on both shoulders. Let's do this. Oh. Okay, so Carissa, tell us about your family.
2: Yeah, so we um, live in Washington State. We're in the Seattle area, and um, I am married to my husband, Shay, and we have three boys. Um, Our oldest is Caleb. He's eight. Um, Micah is five, and Josiah is two, and... um, Yeah. Life is really chaotic and really busy and they are incredibly active and, um, we are all living out of our house for like the last 10 months. And so, um, it's all just amplified and a little crazy, but it's been really fun. Um, they are all tight buddies, Caleb, my oldest is um, has a diagnosis of coffin Cyrus syndrome of autism of childhood apraxia of speech um, a, a slew of other medical longstanding history stuff that is relatively under control now um, but he yeah he has a long history of medical and developmental stuff um, that we have dealt with and so in a lot of ways, him and my five-year-old are are kind of like twins and get mistaken as, mistaken for being twins a lot, and um, are really like best buddies and enemies <laughs> <laughs> on any given hour. As um, are most siblings, right? Yes, like, and yeah. it's actually it's fun even thinking about saying that because there were like years where they really didn't interact. And so those dynamics have changed a ton where it's very sibling ish now, as opposed to what it started as. Um, and then our two-year-old is like a, yeah, raging tornado of two-year-old who just wants (laughs) to do everything they are doing. And so it's just like, it's just like, um, they all just amp each other up. They are obsessed with puppies and stuffed animals. So and how many do you have or how many we are you getting them? We have two dogs. <laughs> um, More puppies, we have lots like, of them. We have like 10 puppy tails like that they wear around the house all the time. And um, Caleb is very frequently seen like walking into buildings, whether it's appointments or school or whatever, like on all fours. And they're just like puppies all the time. So that's that, adorable. Yeah. He loves to read. He's a good reader. And he loves iPad and screens and all the things. (laughs) And, you know, don't we all? What did your Christmas card say? Caleb, in this last year, so I would say really even in the last six months, Caleb has started talking. Oh, my gosh. Right around the seven and a half year point. Um, About a year ago, I got Mama. And I honestly, like, had started to reconcile never hearing his voice. We have navigated the nonverbal communication journey for years, and he used an iPad to talk, and we had figured out communication and figured out, like, making peace with reconciling, like, communication is the priority, not talking. And there was healing in that journey for sure. And then all of a sudden, we started to get a few words. And he is, he is talking. It is, he is apraxic and he is very hard to understand. And it's a little bit like learning a third language. Um, Can you describe what apraxic is? Yeah. So it's a neurological condition. It's a motor planning condition. So he is globally apraxic. So it's like his brain knows what he wants to say and his mouth can't get it out. Or his mouth can't make the connection and the shape with his tongue and movements to like get the, get the speech out in the way that you and I talk and don't have to think about any of that. And for him, it's like thousands and thousands and thousands of repetitions solidify those motor planning avenues. But we really didn't know if we would, we really didn't know if we would ever hear his voice. And I had kind of let go of some of the hope of like, this is just how it's going to be. And it's good. And we got to that point of like, it's good and we can. Figure it out with each other, and all of a sudden he is talking, and it's really fun. It's really is, fun. I feel like it has opened up our insight into our kid, and he's funny, and he. It's like our behavior stuff has gone down because I think he's.
0: He can get words out. understanding
2: now. Uh, yeah. Yes, and I think he's less frustrated and. It's really fun. It's been the biggest shock. It literally started like right when all the COVID stuff shut down, like right when everything happened. If I'm going to be stuck in this house with these people for (laughs) months on end, I better get some words out. Oh my gosh. We stopped doing all the therapies, school shut down. I mean, it was like the world ended and he just kind of started blossoming and it has been just like the deepest joy. I never thought we would see that side of, so...
0: Oh, yeah, that is our big
2: so cool. 2020 victory. But <laughs> I also think it's
0: awesome how you said that communication became your goal, not just talking, because that's where we're at trying yeah. to teach Lorelai how to use yeah. her talking tablet. And right now, she's mastered goodbye, 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 all done. But there is a shift of I just want to hear a sentence. I want to hear her say mm-hmm. I love you. To oh, yeah. I want you to be able to say anything with this computer yeah um yeah, so yeah. the real important you kind of give up a part of that hope,
2: yes,
1: absolutely, I think too, like i don 't know if you felt like this, but when I watch Selah, I mean eyes have to be on her all the time to know what she 's pointing at, where her eyes are gazing. Like she'll be at the dinner table looking at the counter and I'm like, okay, are you looking at your water? Are you looking at your milk? Like what, what do you need? You know? And so the freedom that comes with not only hearing the things that your child wants to get out, but just the ease of being like, oh my gosh, I don't have to have eyes on you 24 seven to know how to help you or what you're looking for. That's amazing.
2: Yes. All of that is true. (laughs)
1: That's so fun. Um, I want to back up um, yes. and just talk about, just touch on the diagnosis. What when when did it start? I mean, when did you did this journey start for you? Was it right away in the beginning? Was it you know a little bit into yeah, it? Yeah.
2: So I um, Caleb was my first kid, and so I had I, and I had a totally normal, healthy pregnancy with no indication that anything was awry or just no indication that anything was off. And so Caleb was born and from hour one, we had feeding issues. He couldn't eat. He couldn't sleep. He was agitated. He was, you know, everything was just a little off and he was small and they, um, but not concerning. And so it, it was a lot of that. Like you're a first time parent. You don't know what to expect. Everyone's like, well, most babies have some sort of feeding struggle at the beginning. It's fine. You know, he couldn't latch. He couldn't all these things. And I just, it was scary because you're like, Oh, okay. They say it's okay. And it, it turned into like trying to like drip a few drops of breast milk in with a spoon and you know, that kind of thing. And then you go home, they sent us home on like this supplementing plan. So I would nurse and then, I would pump and then I would feed him and then everybody would try to sleep for an hour and then repeat, you know? And so that was our life for a few weeks and then, but he kept losing weight. And then at like two weeks, um, he started vomiting all the time, all the time. And so, and again, it was kind of like, well, you know, all the nurses would be like, well, all babies spit up. You're like, Oh no, this is not, this is not that, Yeah. I mean, looking back, it just felt like a whole season, the first year of kind of this gaslighting, like, you don't know what you're talking about. It's fine. All babies do this until we hit about three months. Well, he got at two weeks, he got RSV and we lived in Colorado at the time. And so it was a dead of winter. He got RSV. He was already losing weight and not eating. And we spent a few weeks in the ICU that was the first time, like, we really thought we were just going to lose him. I mean, he was dangerously low in weight. They had not, in hindsight, they hadn't put a feeding tube in. And I didn't even know at that point that, like, feeding tubes are a thing. And, you know, like, I just thought, I'm watching my baby wilt away into nothing and die. And he was just totally, it was just really scary. And that's when they found cardiac issues. And, um, there was talk of airlifting us to Denver. So it was like at two weeks in everything started mounting and it just got really scary, really quick. By the time we hit three months, his feeding stuff and the vomiting was so significant that we spent, um, several weeks inpatient with like every test, every, everything, nobody could figure out why he was vomiting. Nobody could figure out what was wrong. Were you working at this time? I was working-ish. So, yes, I I had a full-time job. I worked um, for a school district um, as a social worker doing child find, ironically, identifying families of kids with um, disabilities or developmental delays and connecting them from um, birth to 21 with services. Um So I was on maternity leave and ended up stretching that out for the first probably six or so months of Caleb's life. But that first year then prompted all of the genetic testing, all of, I mean, we were seeing every specialist and Caleb was just falling apart and nobody could figure out why, which was, that was, I think, the most terrifying thing for us because we didn't get um, any actual diagnosis until he was a little past two and a half. So he had heart surgery the first year. He had an NG tube and then a G tube placed. And, um, we were just, we, I, we literally were just like drowning in vomit. And this kid who was not growing and not developing and not thriving. And
1: are all those symptoms specific to his syndrome?
2: They feeding, feeding challenges are very common. Yes. Um, GI challenges are very common. Um, Caleb's, especially his GI stuff seems to be on the more significant side and he is still at eight, a hundred percent D tube fed. Um, and that is less common. Okay. Um, cardiac stuff is common. So yes, it is. He ended up having significant motility issues. So his is basically a paralysis of his stomach that wasn't moving stuff through. And we didn't figure that out until about a year in, So it just felt like a lot of searching for answers that weren't there for a really long time. He got a diagnosis of Coffin Cyrus Syndrome and autism um, within the same month of each other when he was about two and a half.
0: Is the autism part of the Coffin Cyrus Syndrome? Like I know in my world, mito kids sometimes have secondary. So is it kind of a secondary
2: thing because of the underlying disease? It is not uncommon. And autism is a tricky one because it's subjective to some degree. And, um, Caleb actually got the autism diagnosis first. And then within about a month, his genetics finally came back with an answer. So you get, you get families who say, well, my doctor wouldn't give us an autism diagnosis because we have a genetic diagnosis that, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe explains some of this. There's, there seems to be a lot of carryover in a lot of these kids that, um, in my opinion, the dual diagnosis has been really helpful for us because autism opens a lot of doors and is really well-known. Um, you mean, a rare you genetic mean genetic often cyrus syndrome isn't really yeah. well-known and doesn't open doors? Like, <laughs> people don't diagnosis. hear about this and go, yeah. Right. A rare genetic diagnosis doesn't do much for you in the way of like, nobody knows what that means. And it explains, it explains medical stuff and it explains why we're seeing what we're seeing and it connects you to community, which is ideal. Um, But it doesn't, you know, there's a lot of people find they still have a lot of struggle getting therapy coverage long-term or whatever, whereas autism opens a lot of those doors pretty easily. Hey, we're going
1: to take a quick pause. Are you a medical or special needs mom looking for a community of people who just get it? you are invited to join us in the 4am mom club. Yep. That's the name of our bonus content, but it is also the name of our community. Moms just like you and me, we laugh together, cry together, and we support each other through this crazy life. You can learn more at when Go to the top of the page and click on the button that says 4am mom club. See y'all there.
2: Is he a social boy? Is and increasingly so. I would have answered that very differently four years ago, but he is. He loves his people. He has um, specifically one best friend, which is like my favorite thing in the whole world. He loves his cousins. He, I mean, he's, he is a very social kid and that has evolved tremendously over the last few years, which is yeah. really fun. That yeah. is fun. When you
0: were getting through the first year, I know we talked before and you said like the first year was just so much trauma. And I feel like so many of us can read, like, I feel like I'm coming out of the trauma section Mm -hmm. a little bit, but then something else will slap you back down. But for the most part, I feel like the trauma of getting the diagnosis and the trauma of adjusting to this is my new life. What, what chapter are you in right now?
2: Okay. So we, we spent the first, I think, 16 months with Caleb. Um, We lived in Colorado and we had great people, great community. We had a church we liked. We had all of like the things that you need. And Caleb came around and it was like, I only had friends with kids who were typical, typically developing. And I only had friends who, you know, like nobody could really relate to us in the trenches and we were drowning. I was drowning. I was at home, you know, full-time with this kid who was just spiraling the drain. And it was incredibly isolating and incredibly traumatic and heartbreaking. And I was angry and probably much more depressed than I gave credence to at the time and all of these things. And we ended up moving when Caleb was 16 months old to Washington state, um, which ended up, I think just being a lifeline for us for a whole variety of reasons. But as I was talking to my husband today about like, it feels weird a little bit doing this because it's been a while since I've really gone through this story. This used to be like, my entire identity and my entire foundation of all of my relationships and all of my whatever. in like the Caleb show was like, what was dictating every single day? Were we drowning? Were we okay? Were we sad? Were we, you know, whatever. And that is less the case now. And I just realized that trauma of that early, I would say really the first three years for us dominated our life. And I feel like we have kind of moved on to the next chapter where I just think we are like in that next phase of, and then life went on. And then we got to see out of some of that. Um, and not that, not that the disability goes away, not that, you know, anything drastically changes, but um, as with anything else, your perspective changes and your experience changes and all of these things. And your kid grows up. And we're moms and we adapt like crazy. Yes. That's
1: amazing. I have never... And so
2: I do. I feel like we have seen the next... I feel like we're in chapter two. Our experience is no longer dictated by the trauma and by the emotion so much. Not that there are not still, you you know, something happens and you get hit by a truck. But um, in terms of like that emotional weight...
0: We all have days. There's days when we
2: don't want to do anything, but watch Netflix
0: and not yeah. process what's going on but for the most part you're at the place now where you're 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 doing your thing you're yeah. focusing on the family and you're surviving quarantine with wine and coffee
1: Exactly Did you feel like that chapter two flipped when you got a diagnosis and you settled in and knew the mm. direction and the path Like did the diagnosis change anything for you guys or was it just the, year, the time that went
2: by? Um, if anything, the diagnosis for us felt like relief. Like that to us was this elusive answer we had been chasing for a really long time. We knew something was at the root of all of this. Even just having an answer, even though that answer didn't mean a ton, like it doesn't tell us it doesn't give us a great prognosis for like what to look forward to and what Caleb may do or not do. And there were just, wasn't, especially if several years ago there wasn't enough data and enough research and enough, all of the things to have those kind of answers, but it gave us a good sense of relief. And then it gave us a footstep into more specific community. And um, how do we have some agency over like, what do we do now? Like, what do we pour our life into now that is going to help Caleb, that is going to help other kids and other families and that kind of thing? Um, it took a while after the diagnosis, I feel, for like that next step to really transform. I actually was pregnant with my second child when we got Caleb's diagnosis and we were so terrified because we didn't know what we were dealing with with caleb and we knew that going in that like we are taking this risk and if we end up doing this again we know we can do it that alone as somebody
0: who has made that decision too like that's a tough pill to swallow
2: it is but i will say i we had that conversation for a long time and my husband was ready before i was but i it took me easily two years with caleb before I just wasn't crying all the time and before I just didn't feel like his life is this tragedy and it's our life is this tragedy and it's so hard and it took easily two years before there was a switch in me of like no he's he's fine he is a happy kid we're fine we can be fine we're strong and like we could do this again do you know what caused the switch no No. yeah (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> well if you figure it out will you just let us all know please but please I will say alone. like
2: and Suze I know you you have been through this journey and your experiences is, is different than mine it was just really freeing to to mm-hmm. have another kid and have like you know it all it all brings layers to that experience but for me, that felt healing in a lot of ways for our family of, like, we are just bigger than this one story.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: um, and for me, it was healing
0: for me to have the second who has the same disease mm-hmm. because, yes, we're bigger than the story, but, like, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Like, yes, and you're I great at like- it. Thank you. Some days. Um, but I, I, I feel like when you have, when your first child is the special needs one and you know that it could be genetic, there is a level of fear of like, am I going to give this to another child? Yeah. I, I dealt with a lot of guilt. Like I can't do this to another human being. And we had a very long conversation of, Could we handle two kids like this? Is somebody missing from our puzzle piece? You know, like, and we kind of just went the route of we're going to get whatever children or child God has planned for us. And having Benji, I think I wanted, I mean, I always wanted to be the grandma who, like, you know, was the crazy grandma from Moana. Like that's my spirit animal. And instead, I'm gonna be a medical mom until both of my kids pass. So yeah. I think it did give me closure though, in a way, because this is what I'm supposed to be doing. So mm. if there's mamas listening, either way, it works out some way or another.
1: So can I ask a question? Cause I my Sela is my third. I my oldest is actually Caleb also, he's ten. And then I have the oh, middle that. Nora. Yeah, it's pretty sweet. Um, But do you like? I have this constant nagging, and I feel like even though Sayla is four, I am in chapter one of the story. Mm -hmm. I feel like for the first two years, they were really hard, or maybe a year Mm -hmm. and a half, but I was like, felt so strong. I was like, we're pushing forward. We got this. She's such a blessing. And although I feel. Much of those same things. I'm feeling like a real dark cloud over us right now. And it's really hard and terrifying and scary. And what does the future hold? But alongside that, I look at my other two kids and I think, this is the Sailor Show. And Mm -hmm. what am I doing to you guys? Am I giving you these things? Like, Caleb, you're 10. Are you about to be 14 and saying, peace out? And I have completely missed so much of that because I'm so focused and just so, um, you know, my whole energy and being goes into this child and what I just can't accept. And so do you guys feel, I know, Susan, you may not, you know, feel the same way, but do you feel like you think about your two younger ones in the same sense or is Caleb leading the pack being your special needs child a little different than maybe him bringing up the rear?
2: I absolutely can relate to what you're saying. It's been a very conscious effort for us, especially as they're getting older. And Caleb, I don't know, I don't know enough about Sayla to know kind of what she, how she fits in those family dynamics. Caleb is delayed in all areas. um, Intellectual disability. I mean, in all the ways, but he We, we approach him and treat him very much like a member of the family and a member of like, he knows the expectations and he like, all of the same things are true across the board. Caleb has much more attention in the areas of support and appointments and behave, you know, all of these things. But in a lot of ways, he just kind of fits into the mix of what's going on. So I absolutely, that was a huge conversation for us, especially a little bit like when they were a little bit younger. Now I feel like we have, in some ways, twin boys who just spiral around each other and we kind of parent them as such. It feels less now like we live in the Caleb show than it did probably the first five or six years. Yeah. And honestly, like when I, when I think about like that reference to chapter two and kind of. It probably wasn't until Caleb was really five. He went to school. <laughs> Some of the the therapy routine lessened. And it was that was not my all-day, every-day job all the time because he was gone for six hours during the day. We did a lot of that after school, but it was like, that's when I got to parent Micah. And then, you know, that's when, like there just became some more normalcy in the routine as Caleb got a little older. And I think that has been really the jumping off point for a lot of the health for our family is like, our life can kind of be this Caleb can go to school and he loves school and he is smart and he learns and he has friends and that is how it should be. And we have high expectations for his school of like how he should be, Approached and treated and included in all of these things. So I feel less like we live in the Caleb show now than used to be the reality.
1: I feel like we're going to need you on, like, for another half hour chat about (laughs) IEPs and
0: like you hold (laughs) schools accountable. Oh, girlfriend. Let's chat it up. (laughs) Well, (laughs) I think too, like, knowing what Diane's going through right now, Sayla loves school. And it has to be of some level comforting to you to hear Carissa say this because I know you've struggled with, I feel like I'm just shipping her off to school, but I think that that's also part of the normalcy that falls into place. Yeah. I feel
1: like she does love school and there's some times where all I want her to do is go to school so I catch a break and I find myself constantly saying Okay, just get to kindergarten. Just get to kindergarten. And I feel guilty and yet I know that's what's best for her. So it's just like No. Weird. and also
2: you're a mom and everybody feels that way. <laughs> they all need to go to school.
1: Like what am I talking about? Not just her. They just
2: <laughs> And tenfold now because nobody goes to school ever.
1: Yeah. So I mean that just gives me so much hope, right? Because I, yes. I understand what it was like for my other two to go to school know the routine, know the normalcy, know that mm-hmm. every day this time she's on the bus and gets off the bus and knowing like that she reaches for the school doors when they have to leave. Mm-hmm. Like she doesn't want to leave, you know? Yeah. And so I'm so comforted by that because if I have to send her off, I might as well know that she wants to be nowhere but there. But um yeah, it just gets
2: it, it the grind is really hard. And so Well, and that letting go is so much harder when your kid can't communicate. Mm-hmm all of the things that are happening or your kid you know like that letting go is a real trust exercise in and of itself.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: That's just different than when you have a typical kid.
1: Mhm. Okay, I really wanted to touch also on this support group you started out in Seattle. On yeah. Facebook. Like tell us in <laughs>
2: the nonprofit, just tell us all of that. <laughs> so when we moved out here, um I, my one goal moving out to Washington was like, we need community or I'm going to drown. Like I need people who can relate to this experience because I had nobody in my life. And if you don't have it, you make it. Exactly. And so I showed up once or twice to this mom support group, which was, painful and really well-intentioned and led by this social worker that was asking really pointed questions and it wasn't stirring conversation because people were like you know and these myself and two moms were like let's go invite people let's have dinner let's have a drink let's create a space where we can have like foster relationships and vulnerability and trust. And this becomes just more of an organic thing. And so we started doing Moms Night Out. We started a small Facebook group to like coordinate communication. And that was six and a half years ago. Um, and it's exploded. And now it's the several thousand person group that has evolved into Sharing of resources and celebrating victories and mourning together and collective recommendations and you name it and and moms night outs have continued or did pre COVID and it's just become a community locally and kind of throughout the Seattle area and even statewide now but that um, I'm really proud of because. Yeah, some of my deepest relationships now have stemmed from that, and um, it, has, it has been a real lifesaver for me personally, and I know for a lot of people. So that was, that was kind of our, like, I have to come out and create it if I need it, and I needed it. When we got our genetic diagnosis, six months later, we went out to Virginia for a very grassroots conference, if you can even call it that, that was, I think, four or five families. At the time. And the geneticist is um, based out of Norfolk. And so we were out there and she really pushed us to like, we need to create a foundation. We need like, this is what would benefit this community long term and research long term. So the seed kind of started there for a nonprofit. So the next really year and a half was spent learning how to start a nonprofit and how to start a foundation around a rare syndrome and um, supporting research and those kind of things. And so that finally took off in 2017. And so that's been a fun learning curve and a fun, like, you know, figure it out as you go.
1: I loved <laughs> but, on your bio how you wrote like fun-ish learning. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's at
2: its thing, you know, totally. it's been a fascinating experience of my husband um, and I learning how to work together, like mm-hmm. in a uh, quasi-professional setting, as opposed to just how to parent together and how to do relationships together and those kind of things. But like, our approaches to leadership and getting stuff done and going after a mission together and like learning how to do that together, which has been an interesting journey, but we're getting better at. Yeah. It's been really fun. And yeah, we're excited for where that's headed. We have people from all over the country who are on the board and it's, it has been a really cool Avenue to jumpstart research and that's incredible take care of the community along the way. So And that's how you help other
0: families who get dealt the same diagnosis. They now have a community
2: that when they Google it. Exactly. Now you have a connect where like that was not the case. When we Googled it, when we first got our diagnosis, it's like, oh, there's three or four Mm -hmm. quasi articles on here. And that's kind of all you can find. And now there's a foundation and now there's conferences and now there's. You know all of these things, which is exciting. It's all just exciting progress. Congratulations!
0: Yeah, we'll we'll be sure to include the link to the foundation and stuff for people to, you know, if they're Absolutely. listening, and they dealt the same diagnosis that they, they can reach out. Yeah, so thank you. We could sit here and talk to you easily for another. Hour, hour Uh, so we might have you back one day to talk about your IEP and advocating because I feel like that is going to be an entire conversation in itself at some point.
2: But just your
0: past social work would be fascinating to to hear about. But
2: it's been an interesting. um, I always kind of have laughed at the irony of like my background set me up perfectly to parent Caleb, Mm -hmm. and I was really resentful of that for a while and. I am just really thankful for it now. Mm -hmm. Like it is, it has served me really well. It has served Caleb really well. I understand school districts and IEPs and Mm -hmm. I know how to advocate and I have some confidence in being good at that. And that has helped me help others. And I'm really thankful for all of that. So while I'm not working professionally now, I feel like I get to use a lot of those skills and continue to flex those muscles, which is good for me.
0: Absolutely. It's funny how things work out. You yeah, not working professionally, but you're running a nonprofit and you're managing a household of three boys. Three boys alone is working professionally like come yeah, on. Right. all
2: the boys. Yes.
0: So, Carissa, what gives you hope? Hmm.
2: You know, I my kid gives me hope, honestly. Like that kid has Changed my entire perspective on life, and he he has opened me up to a world that I never really knew anything about, and if I'm honest, probably never really cared to know anything about. And that has become a lot of my passion and what drives me forward. And I would not trade that for anything in the world. Um, I love seeing. Families connect and families feel like they belong and like there is kind of hope in the next step. And I love getting to be a part of that process selfishly um, because it, it continues to fuel that fire in me of knowing that that is a need. I love seeing teachers understand and see the value in academic inclusion. That gives me a lot of hope for our future. I don't know. Jesus gives me hope (laughs) Amen, sister
0: (laughs) Well, we appreciate you being here today and I am thankful for you and our mutual contact that put us in touch and I have to say I freaking love this
1: podcast. This is so fun (laughs) to talk to so many people and be like, yes, we
2: need to talk more about all this stuff. It's so good. Cheers to you guys for doing the work. It's good. And I'm excited for what you're doing. I'm excited to see where that goes.
1: It's like a lot of legwork, but it's really all of you that bring this forward and you can just soak everything up in different ways that everybody
0: says. And it's just so good. So thank you for sharing your kids. The purpose of our conversation today and this podcast, whatever it turns into, is to help moms and other families who are feeling lost and confused right now and are getting a diagnosis or navigating to chapter 2 and are confused or scared or none of us know what the future looks like and none of us figured this out on day 1 and i still haven't figured it out i have a podcast and i don't know what the heck i'm doing
2: no but that's life and i i think it's i think your entry into parenting kids with disabilities whatever that may look like is almost always sad and heavy and scary and people look at you with pity and I mean that that seems to be the narrative and I think what I didn't anticipate on this journey is seeing the other side of that and seeing like being overwhelmed with gratitude that this is the life we get to live and I didn't anticipate that and being overwhelmed with gratitude that like I now have a step in to understanding the disability community and the disabled experience and those are things that like I am just really thankful for and I didn't anticipate getting to a point with my kid where like I wouldn't change anything Mm -hmm. because had you have asked me for four years it's like oh my gosh I would change it all. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I can honestly say that like that has flipped and I didn't anticipate that. And what you're
0: saying is it's okay for the mamas who are feeling that way right now.
2: Oh, a hundred percent. And, and that's like, I think you're just so used to everything is heavy and hard and sad and scary and unknown. And all of that is true. And a lot of that remains true. I think I didn't expect getting to see the flip side and really enjoying it. I am really thankful for that. It's
0: incredible. So thank you. Thank you for being here today. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll bring you back for an IEP talk. Yes. Thank you.
2: (laughs) Thank you ladies. It's so fun talking to you.
0: Thank you so much, Carissa, for being here. I'm so lucky to have met you in real life, but I'm even more lucky now that we've gotten to share and experience your story. It was a breath
1: of fresh air to hear you talk about the next chapter. Um, I've never like looked at a journey like that before in chapters, and it brought a sense of hope and a sense of peace, knowing that hopefully, you know, we can all get somewhere where we're just smooth sailing a little bit more um, and have just a freshness about
0: our situation. And, you know, sometimes the chapters we're in get long and it really does, it really does help to hear someone say like, you know, some of the first chapters were harder and then, you know, right now the chapter I'm in is okay. And maybe the chapter after that won't be, but Mm -hmm. it's part of this long journey. And I really appreciated that perspective. This is Susan, and I'm going to go ice my foot because I'm getting old and I stood up yesterday and I hurt my ankle. It's too bad.
1: This is Diane. I'm going to go pop a pimple. Hmm. We will um, catch y'all later. We know you have so many choices on how to spend your time. Thank you so much for choosing to spend it with us. We would be honored to hear your unique, complicated, and hope-filled stories. We would love for you to connect with us and share your story on our website, www.whenautumncomes.com, and you can find us on social media at When Autumn Comes Podcast. Also, check us out at 4AM Mom Club, where we will be sharing our middle-of-the-night shenanigans, Etsy finds, Netflix faves, and other things to get us through. We would love for you to hit subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. You'll continue to hear unique stories, feel a whole lot of comfort and connection, and hopefully share in a few laughs. We are new to the podcasting world, so this show is produced by yours truly. With hope and a whole lot of excitement, Diane and Susan. See you next time.